completely dark around four o'clock. It feels like the rain is pouring down. You're freezing cold and you're stuck outside. I was a freshman in college and I went to Western New England University, which is about 90 miles north of here. And me and 30 of my friends stood on one side of the field facing 30 men from another school. We were playing soccer. So I was on the men's soccer team at, at Western New England. It was conference playoffs time. It was one of those situations where your whole season is gone. You've played 25, 30 games, and if you win, you get to keep playing. If you lose, you're done. And so it's, it's bitter cold. It is freezing. It's rainy. There are just bodies flying everywhere. The ball is flying everywhere. It's a mud pit. It's terrible. And the soccer's not going so well either. So we get all the way through 90 minutes, and it's 0-0 still, which is terribly boring if you're one of the parents stuck watching in the freezing rain, and 90 minutes you can't even get something to cheer for. So you get 15 extra minutes, still nothing goes by, no goals, nothing. You get 15 more minutes to finish up the game, nothing. 120 minutes all done, 0-0. And so in this type of situation where... You've got to have a winner. Typically in soccer, that would end in a tie. But if it's playoffs, what you do is you have what's called penalty kicks. Does anyone know what, what those are? You've seen maybe soccer on TV. A handful of you. Love it. The rest of you think me and the other people who play soccer are dumb. Why don't we play baseball or basketball like normal Americans? I understand that. So what happens is you go to penalty kicks. One team picks five guys. The other team picks five guys. You kind of go, this team shoots, then this team shoots. And at the end of all ten shooters... Whoever has the most goals, that's the winner of the game. And so we get in our huddle. Coach begins looking around at us. And we've been practicing these for a couple weeks now, knowing this would be coming. And so he starts pointing at us. And he goes, okay, one. All right, he's looking around. Two, three, four. He looks at me and goes, five. And I went, what? What? Anyways, so nerves start going crazy, you know. Again, I've been at college now two months. So I'm little fish. Big pond, okay? So the first nine players go, and it go, falls to me as the tenth shooter. And if you've ever seen it, you've got this eternally long walk from half field. It takes you about two minutes to get all the way down to the 12-yard line where you shoot this PK from. You line up. The referee will blow his whistle, and then you get to, you get to shoot. I want you just to mo- imagine this moment with me. I mean, this is my moment, okay? I'm an 18-year-old puny little kid. I'm, like I said, small fish in a big pond. At this point, all the classes got out, so the entire field is surrounded three and four people deep with students, okay? They're ready to charge. I'm thinking, if I bury this thing, we win the game, I'm going off on people's shoulders, and I'm pretty much set for the next four years as far as popularity goes. So this is running through my head, okay? All the meantime, I'm shivering because I'm so cold because I'm stuck in a T-shirt and shorts and it's 16 degrees out and raining. So the ref stands up. I walk forward. He blows his whistle. Says, you can go. So, okay, here it is. All the moment has led up to this. So I take the couple steps forward, plant this foot, left one, left foot slips, body comes back. Boop! It goes about 70 feet high. I mean, you could have stacked the goal three times on itself and it still would have went up. I mean, if you think I'm exaggerating, there was another school there called Clark University. They'd been scouting. It was so pathetically terrible that for the rest of their year, 
as they practiced their penalty kicks, they said, whatever you do, don't schnep it. I became the name that they used to make sure you don't know what happened. And if you're not sure, you're like, that's kind of a weird phrase. What does that mean? That's my last name. They used my last name to describe what not to do. And I came here for sympathy, and you're laughing. You know, what did I feel in that moment? I felt like I was a major disappointment. Their next guy made it. Our next guy missed it. Game over. Season done. That's it. We walk off the field kind of shell-shocked. And I'm a young little guy. I've got some tears running down my face. I mean, I'm absolutely crushed because I feel like I let the people who were counting on me down. I felt like a failure. I felt like a disappointment. I was disappointed in myself, and I knew that others were disappointed in me. And I wonder how many of you know what that feels like. That feeling of feeling like a disappointment isn't something that's only relegated to the sports arena. You know, my example is kind of a light one. But when you begin to look at that in life, you realize it's not such, not such a light topic, is it? I bet everyone of us here knows what it feels like to be a disappointment. I bet you can think back to specific times in your life when you felt like you didn't measure up. When you felt like you've messed up just one too many times. You don't even want to ask for forgiveness again because you've been there so many times before. Maybe you're a high school student and you feel like your parents have such high expectations, but you just don't have the discipline and the drive or perhaps the, even the intellect to live up to their expectations. And so you feel like a disappointment. Maybe you're a husband here and you've made mistakes with your family in the past and you know you've let them down. You've disappointed them at times and so you feel this burden, this shame when things happen. Maybe you've called your Christian, you've called yourself a Christian for quite some time, but you still don't know what you believe. Maybe you're still racked with doubt and you're still working through doubt and you feel like, man, God must be upset with me. God must be disappointed that I still have doubts about my faith. Or maybe, maybe in the workplace, you pray before you go in, you say, God, make me a witness. God, I want to be a missionary. I want to be an ambassador while I'm at work today. And then tension runs high and by 1.30 you're barking at all your, your non-believing Friends, and you say, God, I, I've made that mistake again. Please don't let my witness be affected. Or maybe you feel like God's disappointed in you because you feel like you haven't initiated enough in your relationship with Him. Your Bible's lying dormant. Your prayer life has been non-existent. And so you feel like God must be disappointed in me. You know, I don't know about, about you, but But sometimes it feels like, why even bother to try again? Because I know I'm just going to fail again. It's only a matter of time until I let God down again. Can anybody here relate to that? You know what that feeling is like? You ever wondered in the back of your mind, I've let God down so many times, can he possibly still want me? Our staff was away last weekend for a couple of days just talking about next season and and one of the things that came up is that in a lot of our conversations as of late a recurring theme is that God is angry with me a lot of folks believe God is angry with them a lot of folks feel like God is disappointed in their life choices and upset with them because of things they've done 
It's a common theme that keeps coming out. You know, if there's anyone who understood this, as we read through our Bibles, there are a ton of folks we could pick from, but, you know, one of the people I think who understood this so well was probably the disciple Matthew. Now, Matthew is the author of the first book of the New Testament. He's one of the 12 disciples. And we don't know a whole lot about his life. We're introduced to him in Matthew 9, but, but by a couple of the things we do know, we can extract or interpolate some of the things that probably led up to that moment for him. You know, if you picture what Matthew's life was probably like, you can just, just imagine, just kind of play with me a little bit of, of what his life would have been like. You know, you picture his mom finds out she's pregnant and his parents are probably ecstatic And they begin to dream about what his life would be like. They begin to dream about what he has, what he's going to do for the kingdom someday. What he's going to do as a Jewish person, how he's going to lead their people. And so they say, you know what? Of all the names we could give him, because of the dreams and aspirations we have for him, we're going to give him the name Levi. You know, names in that culture had a ton of significance. And for a son to bear the name Levi, it meant that your parents had huge dreams and aspirations for your future. The tribe of Levites were the priestly tribe of Israel. They were the spiritual leaders and the spiritual guides of the nation of Israel. And one author states that to be given the name of Levi meant that your parents expected you to serve the Lord as the Levites did. Perhaps not as one of their tribes, but it doesn't mean you can't still be a spiritual leader. Even if you're not born into that tribe... You still have goals of you leading our people, of being a guide for us, of leading us to God, to Yahweh. And so in all likelihood, perhaps by age 12, he would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Probably continued on this path, which would next require he'd try to become a disciple of of one of the rabbis. But as we know from his life, somewhere along the way, something went wrong. Maybe he was rejected by the rabbis that he applied to study under. Maybe at some point his his fellow classmates just outpaced him. But all we know is that when we're finally introduced to him in Matthew chapter 9, Levi is living a life far from serving God. In fact, he's living a life that serves himself. We know that Matthew was a tax collector. And in that culture, Rome occupied the land of Israel. And so Rome demanded taxes of the people who they occupied. And so a tax collector was someone who literally worked for the enemy, who worked for Rome. And so they were were getting rich off their own people. They could collect as much as they want, give the required amount to Rome, and pocket the rest. And so tax collectors were about as low as could be seen in the Jewish culture. They were a religious and a social outcast. And they were actually seen as ceremonially unclean in that they weren't even allowed into the outer court of the tabernacle. There are few things more disliked in that culture than tax collectors, and they were seen as traitors. And this is where we pick up Matthew's life. A far cry from the dreams his parents had for him when they gave him the name Levi. So let's see what Jesus walks into here in Matthew chapter 9. We'll put it up on the screen if you don't have your Bible. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. 
Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. At 12 different points in the New Testament, Jesus is called rabbi. Now, this word rabbi is a word that meant teacher. And rabbi was called teacher because he was considered a a teacher of the word of God. And what happened in those days is that a rabbi would take on a group of students and they would literally live life with this rabbi. They would follow him. They would try and be like him. They would, you know, teach how he taught and love people in the way he loved people. It's like if you wanted to be a care pastor and you would follow Pastor Gaylord around for a while and you'd learn how he loves folks and you'd kind of learn some of the ways he prays and some of the scriptures he goes to because you want to be like him. They would aspire to one day be just like their rabbi. And so in this culture, you can imagine the process of, of a rabbi selecting his students was incredibly stringent because since they wanted to be like him, a rabbi's students were a direct reflection on the rabbi himself. And so if the students were well-educated, well-spoken, the rabbi was looked at in that same light. And if his students were mediocre, he was looked down upon. And so you can see that as a rabbi takes applications, you know, for his followers, for his students, it was incredibly important to him that who he would pick. And so this, this idea of a rabbi coming to a disciple and inviting him was just not what happened in that day. You had to work hard to get a rabbi's attention and you had to work hard in order to allow him to get him to allow you to follow him. But if you know how Jesus went about gathering his followers, his disciples, it was he who did the asking. It was he who did the inviting which was not done in that day. A rabbi would never dare humble himself. He would never extend himself in that day because he would never risk rejection. He was the one who was accustomed to doing the rejection. And so that's why when you know this background, this, this interaction between Jesus and Matthew is preposterous. I mean, as we said, one, no rabbi ever invited a student. But in the off case that a rabbi did do that, you can be sure he went to the top of the class and got the cream of the crop. He would never go and ask a tax collector because the tax collector was the lowest of the low. See, Matthew knew what it was like to be a disappointment. He knew what it was like to feel that feeling in your gut where you feel like you're just not good enough. You feel like you've let folks down. And so when Jesus walks up to him, what he expects is condemnation. He expects him to be like the Pharisees who are sitting there condemning him. You know, my wife and I watched, how many of you watched the Bible series on the History Channel over the last few couple months back? We were watching part four, which told the story. And we were watching this yesterday, actually. And, and so you've got the Pharisee pointing at the tax collector saying, they're vermin. They're good for nothing. And what does Jesus do? They're all expecting Jesus to join in with that. And he comes over to Matthew and he extends his hand. He says, follow me. But you wonder, you look at the other disciples. Matthew surely knew what it was like to be a disappointment. He knew what it was like to be a failure. But maybe Jesus, maybe he was the project for the other 11 disciples. Surely as we looked at the other disciples, we would see that they had it all together. 
that the people Jesus allows to follow him are folks who have it all together. Surely that must be the case. And as you read the Gospels, we know that couldn't be farther from the truth as we look at the lives of the other 11 disciples. Isn't that true? You know, let's just look at, look at Peter, for example. We'll pick it up here in Matthew 26. And I just want to read this one little story that highlights it. Starting in verse 21. And this is Jesus with his disciples on the night before, the night he's arrested. He's with them eating that last meal. And it says, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus answered, truly, I tell you. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And it was just a few hours later, after Peter courageously attacked those who were trying to arrest Jesus, that when asked if he was one of Jesus' followers, if he asked if he was with him, He vehemently denied it three times. And it says he went away and he wept bitterly. He knew what that feeling felt like. That feeling that you and I know what it feels like. And what about the other disciples? They booked when Jesus was being arrested. Left him. This was their moment to rise up and stand with their Savior. And they fled. Their friend, their teacher... And in Mark, it tells us as they all fled. So I'll bet if we went around the room, each one of us could tell stories of ways we've felt like a disappointment. And it would seem as we look at the other followers of Jesus that you and I are in good company. This isn't something left for us. You know, perhaps you feel like God is angry with you. Because you've been lacking in your relationship with him, as we said earlier. You haven't prayed a whole lot. You haven't spent much time reading your Bible. And so you assume that God is disappointed in you. Maybe the mistakes of your past still continue to haunt you to this day. And you felt like you've let others down to the extent that you can never bear to face them again. And you felt like you've let God down so many times that while you're sort of sure he probably kind of loves you, you're definitely sure he doesn't like you. Maybe you come from a different faith background and you're wondering if God is angry with you even for sitting in this service. Well, I want to tell you, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The bad news is that there's no magic 10-step treatment for feeling like a disappointment, for feeling like a failure. There's no magic pill I can give you. But the good news is this. The gospel answers this for us. The promises of Scripture lead us in this area and tell us what to do when we feel like this, when we feel like we've let him down. So we've got the promises of Christ. Because here's the problem. We have let culture dictate to us how God feels about us rather than the promises of Christ. We've let our relationships with others drive the way we think God feels about us. And so I've got one aim here. I'll be honest. I want to give you some incredible verses and text that you can lodge into the back of your mind 
That when you feel Satan condemning you, when he, you feel him lying to you saying, you are a disappointment, you are not good enough, you messed up again, you've got a place in your Bible that you can open up to and say, no, that's not true. That is not true. And so if you're a non-Christian, you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. You're welcome. We want you to know that we believe God loves you more than you know. Romans 5.8 says this. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In our sin, in our mistakes, Christ died for us. It's not that you have to clean yourself up and make yourself worthy of God. No, God makes you worthy. He has decided you are worthy. He has taken his love and placed it on you. He sent his son to die for you before you can clean yourself up. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14 said, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. You hear the beauty in that? Those two verses, it says that he forgave you. And not just that, he took those things that you're holding up as the things that keep you from God. It says he took them and he put them on Christ and he nailed them to the cross while you were still dead in your sins. Christ died for you before you could clean yourself up and make yourself worthy of him. That's the beauty of the gospel. He has made a way for you. And when you believe the lie that says God couldn't love me, not with what I've done, you're choosing to believe that your sin is bigger than God's grace. And my friend, it's just simply not true. You cannot out the grace of God and the offer of redemption that he's putting before you today. He's saying, my child, I love you. I sent my son in order that you might have life. So he would give his life for yours. In Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, Paul writes this. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. I love that phrase in there. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And that mercy and that renewal that Paul wrote about is freely offered to you today. Maybe you're here and you're in that camp that we talked about earlier, which is I'm just such a disappointment to God. I've let him down so many times. I've almost given up trying. I want you to remind I want to remind you a few things that you may already know. Some things that you need to take and maybe write on a card and put in your Bible 
or memorized so that you have them at the back of your mind so that you can call them forward when you experience these feelings. And the first is this one. You may know it. First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if that's you and you've come before him and you've pled for forgiveness, you have it. You have it. Do you understand that? Do you feel the hope and the joy that wells up in your soul when you know that your maker and your creator, the one that Psalm 139 tells us, knit you together in your mother's womb, loves you and isn't counting your sin against you any longer? Do you feel the hope that wells up when that lodges? And you hear this little whisper in the back of your mind that says, that can't possibly be true. God couldn't really love you, couldn't actually be okay with you because you're a failure. Then take this one, Romans 8, 1, and declare it, call it out. It says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Boy, if there's one verse you can take home today, if there's one verse I can implore you to memorize, it's that. Through your faith in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for you. No angry fingers shaking in your face saying, what's wrong with you? God has no condemnation for you. God does not have anger for you. You need to hear that today. I implore you to believe that. You know, we get in this, this cycle where we make a mistake and we feel like we let God down. And then for some reason we feel like we need to hide from Him. Which is just like Adam and Eve did. We feel like we need to run away, and sometimes that's for a day, sometimes that's for a week, sometimes that's for ten years. We feel like until we can have enough time go by in which we haven't let him down, we can't come to him. I can't dare open my Bible with all that's happened. You know, it's precious time we can't get back. It's precious time that we're losing when all the while God is sitting there with his hand outstretched, like he said to Matthew. And he's saying, my child, follow me. Come after me. I've covered that. Jesus' blood covers that sin too. Yeah, I know you've asked me for forgiveness for that one in the past. But my son, his blood covers that as well. And I am not condemning you for that. So get back on your feet. Come on, we've got kingdom work to do. And let's not lose any more time wallowing in your sin. You've confessed it. I've forgiven it. And I don't condemn you. So let's go. Let's go. Would you bow your heads with me? You know, the words that Jesus spoke over Matthew are the same ones that he's calling out to you today. Now imagine that moment as Jesus looks down at Matthew. I loved how that that Bible program showed it. Jesus, with warmth and compassion in his eyes, says, follow me. He doesn't look down and say, tax collector, huh? He doesn't look down and say, divorced, huh? Liar, huh? He's not looking down at you and saying, anger, huh? Still dealing with that. He's not looking at you saying, when was the last time you picked up your Bible? In the same warmth and compassion he had for Matthew when he outstretched his hand 
Those two words are the same ones he has for us this morning. Follow me. He's saying to you the same thing he said to Matthew, and that's follow me. Now, Matthew had a choice, the same choice that you have this morning. He knew that following Jesus would cost him. He knew he would have to give up his life as a tax collector and and the riches that came with that. Jesus wasn't offering him a part-time gig as a disciple so he could be a tax collector full-time. Jesus was calling him to new life. And what he said to Matthew, he says to you and he says to me, that your mistakes do not determine your merit. I hope some of you hear that and believe that this morning. Your mistakes do not determine your merit. Tradition tells us that he spent the rest of his life, Matthew that is, telling people about Jesus. And that one day, many years later, he died as a martyr, giving his life for the cause of the gospel. You know how he did that? Because when he took a risk... When he extended his hand back out to Jesus, he found that Jesus was worth it. You know, if God has been speaking to you this morning, I just implore you not to let another day go by where you feel like you're not worthy of him. If you don't know him personally, you don't know the grace and redemption that comes from a relationship with God, I implore you, don't let another day go by. Let today be the day that you put a stake in the ground and you say, today is my day. If God has been speaking to you, a great first step would be to to come forward and allow the prayer team to pray with you. They would love to do that. Tell them. Tell them where your heart is. You can be honest with them. They will love you and pray with you. If you've walked with God for a long time, he's reminding you today to follow him. He's asking you to check your heart for perhaps some places where you've begun to to lose your sight. And he's saying, my child, follow me. Get back in line because we have incredible things to do for the kingdom. I've got great things in store for you. Follow me. That's the message he has for you. Father, for my friends here this morning, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're among us. We thank you that you're knocking on our hearts. From the person who's known you for 50 years to the person here who's perhaps come and heard about this God for the first time. You're knocking on our hearts and you're calling us back to you, God, because you know it's so easy for us to just begin to drift away from you. And so those two words you have for us are still follow me. Follow me. You are worth it. When we lose everything, we find everything in you. And I thank you for that, God. And we finish with Paul's words to the Ephesians and his prayer. And I'll pray these for you that he prayed for them. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is in work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.